Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I work with Peace Catalyst International in the Washington, D.C. area, but I'm spending a few months here in South Africa um, due to my husband's work. Um, so I'm joining you all from South Africa again. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ali Bernison. Hey guys, I'm Allie and I'm with PCI in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoy the podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It just really helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. And yeah, it just helps us be found. So thanks guys for doing that. Yeah, thank you all for doing that. And You know, we're in the middle of our series called Becoming the Beloved Community, Restoration and Healing in the Midst of Division. And this is rooted in the historical origin of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. And it's the concept of becoming the beloved community is what is framing our conversations. And we're talking to people whom we call peace builders who are involving themselves in the ministry of reconciliation interrupting and challenging oppression, and holding firmly to a vision of justice, restoration, peace, and healing for all members of a community. And this week, we are talking to another amazing guest. So we're interviewing Janelle Austin, who is a racial justice coach and has over 15 years of experience in facilitating group conversations on race designing racism and multicultural educational programs, mentoring individuals, and supporting institutional leadership as they think through strategies to take seriously diversity and inclusion integration. Janelle is also the lead caretaker of the George Floyd Memorial and, along with George Floyd's family, co-founded the George Floyd Global Memorial, an organization that is dedicated to preserving the offerings left at the memorial and the story of the uprising. Janelle holds a master's in intercultural studies and a master of divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary. So this conversation, I'm telling you guys, it was um, it was pretty great. So we're excited to share it. Yeah, definitely. much for joining us Janelle um so we were just chatting about this before we started recording because I'm sure there's a lot to say with this first question but can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are now um so just how you got to where you're sitting today whatever comes to mind and um I'm sure you'll with that question you'll integrate you know academics and career projects um and yeah kind of how you ended up in the role that you're in today and if you could share what that what that position is absolutely so you actually added a lot more context to that question because had you just left it at could you tell us a little bit about yourself i would have probably responded like i love cloud watching i believe that ice cream makes the world go around and cookies help it (laughs) um because i can be funny like that um (laughs) But uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I am number four of seven children. Um, And I um, went to, I grew up in a Christian home and 
my parents put us through Christian schools, which is a whole experience in and of itself. And I ended up going to, um, I ended up going to uh, Messiah College, which is now Messiah University, when uh, I went to undergrad and I majored in Christian ministries with a focus, focus in global studies because I thought that I was going to be uh, a missionary somewhere around the world. Like I loved cultures. I loved traveling. I had started traveling internationally when I was 13. I loved people. Um, my backup plan was going to be international business because I still wanted to be able to go somewhere in the world like that. That's where I was at 18. Um, I graduated and ended up going to Fuller Theological Seminary to do a Master's of Arts in Intercultural Studies, where I um, I graduated during the economic crash of 2008-2009. So I was being offered a job by the school as an academic advisor, and I took it because everybody else was getting laid off. And here I was being offered a job, even though it wasn't my most favorite job in the world. I was like, it's a job. It'll pay my bills. <laughs> and I gave them two years. I said, I will do this for two years because that's all I can handle. Well, I was there for seven and I was an academic advisor <laughs> for seven years. Um, ended up being a manager in that capacity. But, um, I transitioned, still worked at the school, but I transitioned from that job to being the director of operations for the Pinnell Center for African-American Church Studies. And that job was really interesting because it allowed me to get outside of the office and into the community and really navigating that balance between um, how do we as an institution really engage the world around us um, in light of everything that was happening. So I... Um, I was appointed in 2015, so that's like in in the aftermath of Ferguson, uh, the Ferguson uprising with the murder of Mike Brown in 2014, and there was just so much unrest in our bodies, and having to provide leadership in that kind of space, and then in uh, then in 2015, I believe Sandra Bland, that's the year Sandra Bland was murdered. Um, and then in 2016, um, Alton Sterling, Philanda Castile, like, and Freddie Gray, uh, we're also dealing with the um, Orlando nightclub shooting. We're dealing with like, like all of this stuff that's happening in our society. And I'm in this position where I have a kind of responsibility to not just care for the fact that it's happening in society and that it matters for the institution, but how do I care for students who, black students in particular, black students who are training to be pastoral leaders um, or spiritual leaders um, and are navigating this mess. And that was an extremely difficult season. Um, an extremely difficult season. So I burned out. Um, I burned out hard. And um, I, I think I recognized that I had burned out by uh, November of 2016. And I remember I went into my boss office, my boss's office, 
with every intention to quit. But then I felt like God got a hold of me and that I couldn't quit. And so instead, I walked into his office, I sat down, and I said, um, I want to quit, but I can't quit because God won't let me, and I need you to tell me what to do. Now, that's not really the way you start a conversation off with your boss. <laughs> but I had had enough, and I was just like, this is me. This is where I am. Falls in your court. Figure it out. And he said, why don't you take like three weeks vacation for Christmas, like take a break and come back and we'll talk about it in the new year. And so I did, I took a break, new year came, we never talked about it. And I continued to spiral downward. Um, by 2018, I had had absolutely enough and I quit my job and I packed up my apartment and I drove to Austin, Texas, not because I had any opportunity there, but because I had a dream. <laughs> I had a dream that I was supposed to move to Austin, Texas, like back in January. And so I was like, all right, I'm moving to Austin. So I moved to Austin, Texas. Yeah. I was just kind of like in between homes and spaces and trying to figure out what am I, what am I going to do with my life? I went to a chiropractor, did a stress test. He was like, Janelle, you have, tested off the charts and I can't help you. So the best thing I can offer is that you go for long walks and take deep breaths until you bring your stress levels down. Hmm. So that's what I did. Uh, for six months I slept and I went for long walks and I took deep breaths. Um, and then after six months I woke up and I decided to get to know the city in, to which I moved. <laughs> And I started getting involved. I got involved with um, this organization called Austin Health Commons, which looked at the intersection between race and health. Um, I got involved with Dell Medical School. They had just hired on a new um, associate dean for public health, Dr. Jewel Mullen. And I started going to these forums she was hosting around race and public health. Because after having experienced that level of severe burnout, I had questions around how do we actually pursue racial justice and protect our health at the same time? Like I didn't believe that the only way we could fight for racial justice was to go through extreme burnout. Um, and I ended up actually taking some like business uh, courses that were free and open to the community to set myself up to open my own consulting firm on racial justice, uh, which I, I've been doing racial justice consulting and designing programs and things like that since college. So I had several years under my belt, maybe around 15 years at the time. And so um, I decided that I would, um, build my company off this idea that we could pursue racial justice without burning out severely. And I had to really think through like, how's that possible? <laughs> well, what, what do you do? And I went to like, I, I don't know how I got through this process, but I concluded that joy, joy, is a kind of sustainable energy. And if somehow we could figure out how to pursue racial justice with joy, 
that we wouldn't have to start with anger, rage, fear, frustration, anxiety, um, and all those things that typically get us off the couch to go do something. And in that, um, in that process, I decided that I would use Clifton Strengths Finders for my clients to figure out what were they naturally good at. Um, because I had asked myself the question, well, how does one produce joy? Like if joy is the source of energy, so I compared it to like um, complex carbohydrates versus sugar. <laughs> um, sugar will give you a high and then a crash, but complex carbohydrates give you more sustainable energy. And so it wasn't that those other energies were bad and they were necessary sometimes to actually get people going, but they weren't sustainable. And so, well, then how do you generate joy? I remember thinking to myself, I said, you know what? The thing that always gives me joy is when I do something that I know that I'm good at. And it has this kind of feedback of joy, like, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I got that done. And so what does it look like then to lean into people's strengths um, and help people understand their strengths and who they are and encourage them to do what they're already naturally good at and lend their agency for the practice of racial justice. Um, so that way it's easier to actually do the work. So it's not like, because one of the things I had observed over the years is that whenever it was time for institutions or organizations to say, oh, now we need to do racial justice work, um, people would get all weird and funny, like, here we go again. Or they'll dig their heels in the ground. Like, I'm not doing it. You're adding to my workload. I don't want to do this. And so I wanted to create a way that would make it easier for people to actually understand that, the, that racial justice is a way of life. It's not an outcome to a particular event. It's not um, something that should be added to your workload. It's, it's something that sh we all should be like thinking about, engaging, practicing, it, it's, it should be common. It should be natural to say, oh, let's do the right thing. <laughs> um, justice in it, it itself, just not just racial justice, but justice is, is a way of life. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, I, I decided to use Clifton Strength Finders as a base to help people understand their strengths um, I did a lot of coaching around language, racial language, to get people more comfortable with language. Because really, when we're really thinking about um, so much of our population as white folks, they don't grow up talking about race around the table like I did. Um, they didn't grow up with the vocabulary to engage um, these kinds of conversations, which makes people extremely uncomfortable to engage these conversations because they don't even know where to begin or, or where to start or how to talk about it. I had one client tell me it was, it was Black History Month coming up and she had this really awkward conversation with one of her Black coworkers. It was like, um, okay, so, um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and like, so she does all of this extra dramatics. Just to simply ask him, will you help me with the Black History Month planning? Mm. And she was so hyper concerned about sounding racist by asking mm. a Black person 
to help her with the Black History Month planning, that she made it even more awkward, right? And I looked right. at her and said, why didn't you just call me? <laughs> like, that's what I'm here <laughs> for. I would have given you the language to do it well. Um, but now you're in a more awkward position because your coworker thinks you're crazy. <laughs> and rightfully so. <laughs> So yeah, but really, really people think like it doesn't have to be that hard. It, like it's not rocket science to do the right thing, right? It just takes paying attention to each other, right. paying attention to the circumstances around us, and and responding to it with our strengths. We say at George Floyd Square, bring your gifts to the square. Um. So I mean, this was like a way bigger introduction that y'all had asked for, but I'm a storyteller, <laughs> so that's your fault. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just like I start and then I keep going. Um, but yeah, so that's um that's how I came to the space of creating racial agency initiative. And then not long after I launched that, George Floyd was lynched and my family invited me to come home to do my work here in Minneapolis. I said no, because one thing I learned about um, both community organizing and um, pastoral work is that they're very similar in that people become very territorial. <laughs> and mm. I didn't want to navigate that. So I was like, no. And then my family asked me again and said, no, we really want you to come home. And I, I assumed that it was because my dad had just died a year prior. And it was a lot. It was a lot to really navigate. Um, navigate that much loss that much trauma that much pain like our city was on fire the air smelled like bonfire there was military marching through the streets um there was a lynching in in basically our backyard it was um less than a quarter mile away two and a half blocks walking distance short blocks um mm -hmm. so it was um it was a lot it was a lot for our family to handle. And I think uh, my family, we do better when we are all together. So I came, I came home um, with one week's worth of clothing. I flew and I thought I'd be here for two weeks. And I just kind of threw myself in the protests. The protests triggered all my trauma from LA. Um, so I was like, I can't do this. And so I started tending to the memorial as my form of protest, I got up 6 a.m. June 1st and just started picking up trash because it was healing. Like I, I had to somehow release the trauma in my body. And I was like, I could pick up trash, I could straighten up flowers, um, I could straighten up protest signs and make the memorial aesthetically pleasing for people who are coming to grieve so that there would not be a distraction. Hmm. Um, and so I just started doing that every day as my form of protest. And I knew that memorials could be a form of protest because when I was at Fuller, uh, we had set up a memorial on the front steps of the institution to, and it was extremely disruptive. Like I remember getting a call from the president and he was like, Janelle, people keep calling me and asking me to take it down. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's not coming down. <laughs> He's like, I know I'm supportive of you all, but I just want to let you know there's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, I really didn't care. I'm like, you know, people, black people are dying, like deal with it, walk around. <laughs> um, and so I knew that memorials could be disruptive. What I didn't know was that memorials could grow to the size of a city block. <laughs> 
And so it just kept growing and growing. And every day the memorial looked different and it truly was a living memorial. As people kept bringing offerings, more kept coming. And so every day it was like, there's more work to do. I will never forget 4th of July because the 5th of July, I was like the only one awake because everybody had partied all night long. And I was sweeping this, the morning passage. So the morning passage is the list of names. that uh, It's like 168 names of people who've died unjustly to the police. And that happens to be the exact location where people decided to set off fireworks the night before. And so mm-hmm. there was all this fireworks debris and dust and trash because people just think that the square would magically clean itself. And so I get up in July. It's just me. It took me like three hours to clean the streets that morning. Like, oh my gosh. With like a push broom and a city garbage can. <laughs> just, it's, it's a lot. Um, but I, it, it's, I begin to realize every day, like I was trying to decide when do I go back to Texas? When do I go when I returned back, my car was there, my stuff was there, I was still paying rent. And um, I remember the decision to stay because I realized there was just so much more work to do. Um, And I couldn't just abandon the work to return back to the life that I thought I was trying to build for myself in in Texas. Mm. Um, So, I I decided to fly back to go get my stuff. I drove from straight from Austin, Texas to Minneapolis. And I remember there was like a call, like a, a community call that like town hall of the city that Andrea Jenkins had had. And I chimed in from the car and then I get to Minneapolis that afternoon, just in time for the evening meeting at George Floyd Square. I show up at the evening meeting at 7 p.m. And then that following morning, I show up at a meeting with the council member uh, and I met Council Vice President Jenkins for the first time face to face. Um, And that was the morning where Justice Resolution 001 uh, was birthed because we were asked the question, what does justice look like? And we went up and down the streets in the community asking people the question, what does justice look like? Um, All of that is the precursor to where I am today. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, There are so many pieces of that that I want to unpack. And yeah, I, I almost don't even know where to begin. Um, but yeah, but I would love to hear more about your practice of caring for George Floyd Memorial and the square and what you noticed that doing, you know, you kind of spoke to what it, what it did to yourself and how it was healing and, um, yeah, how it was so much more than just picking up trash, you know, that it symbolized something greater. I, yeah, I wonder what you observed it doing to, to and for the community and 
did did others join you in that process of preservation and care um yeah what what did that look like for the wider community honoring um yeah honoring the space in the way that you did absolutely so i think it must be told that i was not the first person to start tending to this to to the square because like as i said i didn't start till june 1st because before i was like protesting boots on the ground let's get it in and then my trauma pushed me into the square Mm. Um, so there were people who were there already tending to the space because i realized that um the morning people who were tending to it were a lot of people who were like we can't be in big crowds because of covid um and so i can this is what i can do i can come early in the morning when there's nobody here and help tend to the space um, I just happened to be one of the people who lived closest and so and could show up every day. And I owned my own company. So I just looked at it as me donating my company time. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So I had I had the privilege to use my time to do that. Not everybody had that privilege. Some people had to go back to work, right? Yeah. So I um yeah, I I was one of the most consistent because I had privilege in owning my own company um, and living so close. Uh, But there was also Paul who was retired. Paul was an older retired white man um, who was also coming every day. And um, eventually we started talking to each other because we're like, wait a minute, we're seeing each other every single day. And, And he felt strongly that he needed to defer to my leadership because he was like, this is a time for black people to be centered. And so whenever someone would come and say, Hey, can I help? How can I volunteer? He would say, go ask that girl over there. Like he didn't even know my name. He was like, go ask that girl. Mm. Um, And me being a former director of operations, being asked for people being asked to do something. I was like, I have to create something for them to do. Like I, I have to create a system that will help people volunteer and volunteer consistently. So that's where my brain was going. So mm-hmm. I just started creating guidelines to make sure that everything was consistent. And then at the end of the day, like I think there was like seven guidelines, but after onboarding so many people, like the two that really stuck and stayed consistent turned out to be more like principles. And that was one, everything is somebody's offering, therefore nothing is thrown away. And mm. two, the people are more sacred than the memorial itself. Uh, we didn't want people throwing away other people's offerings. Like if it got caught by the wind, that's one thing. But people deciding, oh, this is ugly or, oh, this doesn't belong or like that was not for yeah. us to decide. This is, this is, somebody had already said this is a sacred space. And so I came into this space with a religious education background saying, okay, I know sacred spaces and, and in sacred spaces, people bring offerings. So all of these things that people are bringing, I started just identifying as offerings and you just don't throw away offerings. That's like, that is not okay. That is a no, no in, in religions across the world. Um, and so I just had to instruct caretakers. If you're going to help, you don't get to throw anything away, period. End of story. So we started storing stuff as it became overwhelming in the bus shelters. Um, And we decided to compost flowers so they wouldn't be thrown in the trash, but at least they would go back into the earth, right? 
um, if they were decaying because they couldn't be in the space because um, they would, as they were decaying, they would develop molds and mold would be a public health issue. And the people are more sacred than the memorial, right? So right. we had to deal first with the health of the people um, and how do we navigate the memorial, not because of its aesthetics, but because um, it needs to be provided wellness for the people. Um, but that also meant that as we were tending to the space, if somebody had a question, we actually had to be able to turn around and tend to the person rather than the space. Or if someone needed to vent, we needed to tend to the person rather than the, than the space. And I had to coach caretakers on how to do that. Now, I didn't start calling people caretakers. The community started calling us caretakers. And then the community started calling me lead caretaker because I was showing up every single day. Um, so the names just kind of grew on us. Yeah. Um, but there were days when there were two of us, and then now I think on my list there's about 50. So, yeah, and not everybody, not 50 people are tending to the memorial every single day, but people are doing what they can with the time that they have and the moment that they have, and people tend to the space in different ways. Um, some people pick up garbage and cigarette buds. Some people straighten up the memorial. Some people straighten up, say their names. Um, some people tend to the gardens. Some people tend um, to fixing things that need to be built. Like people tend to the space in different ways. So yeah, so that's where we are with caretakers. And it's, it's a volunteer run operation. I think we, at some point, I think last August, we calculated that we had over 20,000 hours of volunteer hours. Wow. So definitely by now it's way more, but... Yeah, collectively, like our our neighborhood, we put in the work um, to sustain the memorial. For context, my understanding that the beloved community is a, is a phrase that Dr. Martin Luther King used a lot um, in his writings and in his speeches to really talk about this idea of the kind of society in which we want to live where uh, black people, white people, rich people, poor people, um, all kinds of people can come and live together and thrive together and, and live in harmony, truly. Um, I think that what's important to understand about the beloved community is that it's an idea that requires a lot of hard work. What I've learned in these past 21 months, the work of building community is some of the most difficult work that we will ever engage in in our entire life because we have to learn how to live with people we do not like. Mm. We have to learn um, how to respect people that we would otherwise never have engaged. We have to learn how to empathize with people that we have been conditioned um, to despise. That is not easy. Um, that is not easy at all. And I think oftentimes the term community gets watered down, tossed back and forth, it gets misused, it gets abused. Um, both by government entities and by just everyday people. And that work of really bringing people together to unify towards a common vision um, is heavy lifting work. 
Mm. And the word beloved with the root word being love, that's heavy work too. It is not easy to love people. Right. It just, it just isn't. We are by nature uh, beings that want to protect our own bodies, that want to protect ourselves. That means that I have to learn to put down my instinct to care for another's need. And right. that is that is the love. The love is not saying you need to speak my language. The love is the work of learning how to speak another's language. Mm. So mm. to build a beloved community in a society that is extremely diverse means that we have to be able to lay down whatever it is that we are holding close and holding tight because it makes us feel all right uh, so that somebody else can feel better and welcomed and feel like they belong. That is not easy. That is engaging in some of the deepest waters of vulnerability because we have to be able to trust that as I make myself vulnerable to make somebody else strong, that somebody else in my community is gonna make themselves vulnerable to make me strong. Mm. That's the work of community. It's, it's not easy, which is why it's, some people choose not to participate because it's easier not to participate. <laughs> right. it's, it's easier to fly solo. It's, it's easier to do, um, what is convenient for self-sufficiency and self-sustainability. Right. Um, yeah. So, so that's what I think about the beloved community. I think it's, I think it's a lot of work. Um, and it's a lot of work that in a society where we depend on convenience, um, that most people aren't willing to do, which is why we don't have it. Right. And it's so interesting that it, it, just to your point, it does require something different from all of us because different things make each of us uncomfortable. Um, and so in that way, it's a community because, and thinking back to what you're doing with strength finders, um, just kind of drawing out and then thinking back to George Floyd Square and the memorial and how everybody plays a different role in the same way in order to create the beloved community, we're all skilled differently, but then also different things make us uncomfortable and we're challenged in different ways. And we have to grow into those areas as well as, you know, utilize our skills and particular giftings. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on where the work of creating beloved community begins, um, whether it begins with, you know, individuals, entire communities, systems, if it all happens at once. It begins by doing the next right thing. I think mm. times we, we sell ourselves short by thinking that we have to accomplish this like big task. Right. Yeah. Um, I had someone engage with me over, um, happy hour. And I was going to say drinks, but I don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't drink. 
I'm allergic to alcohol. So I was like, what the, What happened? It was happy hour. I, I engaged with someone over happy hour and um, they had indicated to me that they wanted to take over the government. And they thought what we were doing at George Floyd Square was amazing. And they wanted to learn all that they could so they could take the, the values and the principles that we had at George Floyd Square and use that to take over the government. Mm. And I, I just kind of looked at him and was like, well, that's ambitious. <laughs> and not likely to actually be successful. Um, so let's start small, right? Let's just start with doing the next right thing. Yeah. Within your scope of influence, what do you see? What can you do? Is the next right thing is helping an elder cross the street over an icy road? Is the next right thing is pulling over your car and helping someone push their car out of the road because it died? (laughs) Mm. Uh, Is the next right thing standing up for someone who's being bullied? Um, what, what, what's the next right thing? Like, what, what do you see is the next right thing is responding to an emergency call of one of your neighbors, right. To make sure that they're okay. Um, right. Is the next right thing is checking in on a crying child. What, like, what's the next right thing. And I think when we start small, we develop our, our muscles and our capacity to be able um, to practice justice. I I ran a few marathons um, while I lived in LA. And one of the things I learned is that you cannot wake up in the morning and decide that you're gonna run a marathon and go out and run 26.2 miles. (laughs) Yeah. Not gonna happen. Um, There's a reason why the first guy who ran the marathon died. after he did it. Um, So you have to train your body. You have to condition your your muscles. You have to condition your mind uh, to be able to sustain that level of work in the same way as I've already identified that the engagement and the participation in a beloved community is work means that we have to start small. We have to start where we at. We have to start where we have the capacity yeah. um, to, to love. Dr. Bill Pinnell, um, the man after whom the center I worked for is named, mm-hmm. he said to me, do what you can with what you've been given. Do what you can with what you've been given. That requires self-assessment, self-reflection. Who am I? Where am I? What is my capacity? But then it also requires social awareness and reflection. What is around me? What is happening? What can I do? Right? So rather than asking it like, well, what can I do? No. What can I do? do? How do I identify something that I can pick up? When I started tending to the memorial, I was like, you know what? It's dirty. There's chicken bones on the ground. <laughs> like, let me, like, it needs to be swept. So let me sweep it up. Right. Mm-hmm. That's something that I can do. And I think sometimes it just takes opening our eyes and paying attention. 
uh, paying yeah. attention to ourselves and paying attention to others, identifying what we can do and do it. Um, do the next right thing. That's the beginning point of building a beloved community. Yeah. That is such, such an amazing response. I really, really like that. I really like that. Um, well, I, you know, I don't want to take too much more of your time. There is a zillion more questions I would like to ask, but I think, and then anything else that you want to share, you're, you're free to. Um, but I think I would be curious to hear the final question that, you know, sometimes we like to end on with this series is like, where in your community and nation world, um, however you define that, are you dreaming for this vision of beloved community to really ignite transformative change? And what would a community look like if it fully embraced this vision? And you're free to answer in whatever way you choose. But I, um, just in kind of, you know, doing a, a little bit of research before our conversation, I found the organizing in Minneapolis that you're doing around Amir Locks, the loss of Amir Locks life. And I wonder, you know, you don't have to place it within that particular context, but um, yeah, I guess just, yeah, with what, with what you're investing in now, what do you think? Right. So I think we need to talk about Amir Lock. Okay. Because Amir Lock died unjustly. Um, Amir Locke's name was not on that warrant and they tried to call him a suspect to create a kind of social imagination of who he was, character smear him before he even had a chance to be known or what his, his name was. Um, Amir Locke died within two seconds of waking up because as a licensed registered gun owner, he had a gun in his hand and somebody was kicking the couch that he was sleeping on, <laughs> woke him up. They saw the gun and shot him dead. Mm. I don't know, like in whose world is that a beloved community? Right. Like, like let's, let's take the conversation of public safety and policing away, right? And let's just say that those men who were given consent to enter into that apartment building and that young man sleeping on that couch all belong to the same beloved community. Mm -hmm. Is that how you treat a person in your beloved community? Right? Right. And I think when we frame it that way, it shows the deficit of how far we are from the idea of a beloved community. The ethics complaint that we just launched as residents to hold our mayor accountable again it's a step, it's a stepping stone to get some kind of accountability. But that gets us nowhere near a beloved community. Um, 
What does love look like? Uh, Dr. Cornell West says justice is what love looks like in public. Doing the right thing. I define justice as the process of making things right. So this work of doing the right thing. We're human. We're always going to mess up. We're always going to cause harm. But what do we do when we cause harm? Um, and, and how do we, how do we make sure that those harms that we have caused are not circling back and causing another harm again? Right. Um, we are far from a beloved community. And so the work that we do at George Floyd Square as neighbors is just that. How do we do the next right thing? How do we respond to somebody's ask for help? How do we um, uh, stand up for people who are socially marginalized? How do we speak out um, against actions that are anti-love? Yeah. Um, how do we speak out against systems that are anti-love? right? Um, how do we do the next right thing in hopes that it will interest toward a beloved community? Mm. Uh, we say one of the chants that we say all, all the time is show me what community looks like. This is what community looks like. Show me what community looks like. This is what community looks like. Mm. Love has to be witnessed. Um, love is not just a feeling. It's not just words. Love has to be witnessed. Show me love. Um, and I think if we can at least begin to commit ourselves to, to that kind of act of how do I show love um, in this moment, um, we'll, we'll inch towards a beloved community. The deficit is great, but we can inch there. Um, and in many ways, when I think about the ethics complaint that we launched, that, I mean, that is an act of love. The act of accountability, that's an act of love, mm -hmm. right? To say that the, the actions caused us to lose a life, um, and therefore, we need to begin the work of righting that wrong. That's the work of justice. And justice is the work right. of love. Um, yeah, but we have to we have to center. Um, we have to center people first, right? We have to center the kind of people we want to become together first. Because otherwise, it, things can easily be dismissed as political. Um, things can easily be dismissed as, um, well, you just don't like me. You've never liked me. Or you're just trying to do a smear campaign. As opposed to, no, this is about love and accountability. This is about mm -hmm. community building. Um, and it hurts. And it's hard. But it's necessary for us to become the kind of community we need to be to save lives. Right. That, and that's at the root of it. 
Um, but people's instinct are, again, the individual protection. How do I protect myself? Um, right. How do I survive this? Amir did not survive. When are we going to start talking about how do we survive this environment that we have created for each other? And if we can't all survive it together, then we need to change something. Right. Period. The only death should be of natural causes. Like, period. Um, and so if we are not surviving the society that we have built for ourselves, then we need to do something different. Yeah. And if someone has decided that the power that they have achieved as an individual is more important than us surviving, then that person needs to move or be moved. That person does not get thrown from community. Let us be clear. Right. But that person just gets relocated in the community into a place where they can be more productive for community. Right. Right. Your strengths. What are your strengths? If you do not have the strength to lead in such a way where people are not unnecessarily dying, then you do not need to be leading in that capacity. Right. Or in any capacity. Um, we, we need to start asking those deep fundamental questions about how we construct our way of life. These are moral questions. I mean, I did, I did my MDiv in ethics. So yes, mm -hmm. EDH, <laughs> I know well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so like, these are deep ethical questions about society building yeah. and people building, right? I did an entire degree in intercultural studies, which is about engaging people um, who speak different languages and have different cultures and have different approaches to life. like. We need to start holding that um, in serious ways if we really want to stop these public lynchings, mm. if we really want to end racism, if, if, we, if we really want to do better and not just be a better Minneapolis, but really be a better America. Because this has been 400 years and counting um, and enough is enough. Right. Like we need to stop putting capitalism and personal gain over the wellness of people. Right. Right. And we can do all of this from a place of joy, going back to what you were saying earlier. Yeah. Leveraging our strengths. Bring your gifts to the square, we say. Like, let's bring your gifts to this movement. Bring your gifts to this moment in time. Like bring your gifts. Who were you created to be? What are you just naturally good at? I like to tell my students, I'm like, who are you when you were five years old and what came easy for you? That is what you need to be doing. Hmm. You are who you have always been. Who are you when you were 10 years, 10 years old? What came easy for you? That's what you need to be doing. Who are you before bills? <laughs> like, before well, before you became straight, right? Who are you? What could you do? Like when, when the world was your playground, when you can imagine to the stars, what came easy for you? And that's what I need you to tap into because that's the best of who you are. 
Who are you when your only responsibility was to play? Bring me that person. Bring that gift to this moment in time. And I can guarantee you that together we will be great. such an amazing conversation. I feel so just grateful for everything that we've learned from Janelle and her story, um, which is just so rich and full of, um, yeah, such a, like such a a long and and deep journey that she's been on to get to where she is today. It's really cool to see that. Right. I know. I, I, I totally agree. I really appreciate her starting the conversation with so much grounding of, of contact, grounding slash context of where she comes from and just the journey that she's been on. And, you know, we were talking briefly, um, you and I were, and just struck by the, the same idea of, um, her needing after a, a period of time working and ministering to the students at Fuller and, um, you know, doing, mm-hmm doing justice work here in, um, Pasadena actually, which is where I am, um, at my alma mater as well. And just that being exhausting and that taking a toll on her being in this, um, peace justice work. Um, yeah. And her needing to take, to take a break because she literally had nothing left to give. Um, I think, yeah, that, that definitely, stuck out to me of, um, you know, how, and then I think it sparked within her, like that, that question of how do we create this work in a way, or how do we do this work in a way that's sustainable? Um, and that does not lead to exhaustion and burnout and, you know, how can we do it leading with joy? Um, and leading with our strengths so that maybe, you know, it doesn't leave us like running ragged, but then, also, you know, there, I mean, it's when you're surrounded by pain and, and facing painful situations, like in traumatic situations, even, um, both firsthand or, and just secondary, like it's, it's understandable. I don't know how you can always protect mm-hmm. against that, that, that exhaustion or the toll it might take on your body and spirit. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I also appreciated how, yeah, just honestly and vulnerably she shared about her journey because I think it is so important for for so many people, I imagine, who are directly involved in that, um, yeah, that direct action work for justice and social equity. And um, yeah, and I think I really, like you're saying, kind of what she was sharing about um, the energy source of joy. But then I liked how she also said like, there are other energy sources. Like sometimes you do need to be angry and that like motivates you, Mm. but the sustainability comes from being able to like have joy and and work from a place of joy. And, um, yeah. And I, yeah. And I, I think I really, I really appreciated what she was saying about racial justice being a way of life and not just necessarily just actions that you take though, those, would be a part of making that like a lifestyle, but it's more about a way of being and yeah. And she just put it so simply, it's like, it's doing the right thing. Um, It's doing righteousness. And that really, um, yeah, I think just speaks to 
kind of both the complexity and the simplicity of it at the same time. I totally agree. And she, um, you know, obviously, as we're talking about all of this within the context of beloved community, I like that she, she was, um, she said something about how, you know, being pursuing beloved community means doing the next right thing. And so, and she gave some super Mm -hmm. practical examples for that. And, you know, I don't even think that that's something that we've heard just from her, but I think it's been from a couple of our guests is like just doing the next thing, whatever that may be, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, whoever, wherever, um, yeah, yeah, in your, in your context, like, yeah, it, it just, I think stripping it down, I mean, I, I think you said it perfectly. It is simple in some ways, but then, you know, we can't, we can't ignore that. Um, mm-hmm. that sometimes it's not straightforward. Like what is the next right thing? Right. Um, thinking about her specific experience in um, George Floyd square and tending to the items that were left um, at the memorial and, um, you know, holding on to them. And she at one point was talking about how everyone was doing something different. Um, And so some people were preserving, um, some people were making the memorial look look visually pleasing, and then others were fixing things that were broken or, um, you know, sweeping, cleaning. it was a cool illustration of like, that's what the beloved community looks like. And, you know, maybe in all of those, it, it, for all of those people that seemed like the next right thing, you know, was to like build something. Right. Well, that's something I can do. I, you know, that's right. the right thing for me to do. I can, um, totally. I'm creative. I can make this look good. That's my next right thing. So it's interesting right. how like all of our next right thing mm-hmm. probably won't be the same thing. Maybe even. Yes. It could be related totally. to each other, but. Um, right. yeah, I thought that was cool. Yeah, I, I love that too. And she was talking about like the strengths finder and ho- helping people find their strengths and then using those strengths for within this context of racial equity. And yeah, and I think that's, that's such a good point what you're bringing up too, because I think it can also look different for each of us as we deepen our journeys of mm-hmm. like, you know, working towards beloved community and, um, you know, maybe there's a season where it's, you're called to post things on social media and you feel really compelled to be doing that and using that platform. But then as you move into more like in-person work or relationships or efforts that, um, you know, maybe that's where the work is and that's where you're doing the right thing. Um, not that you stop using your other platforms, but it's kind of like, yeah, like deepening yeah. that work and what that looks like and, or I'm sorry, not work, way of life, way of being right. Um, right. and what that looks like. Um, right. So yeah, I think there's different skills and gifts that we, and strengths that we have. And then there's also like different seasons of what are maybe what, yeah, what doing the right thing looks like um, in our current context. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, so um, for Janelle. <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, stumbled upon this quote that I wanted to read from Janelle. Um, and it says, 
the answer to anti-blackness, the answer to racism is building stronger communities. And what I've learned over the past 10 months is that building stronger communities is rooted in the decisions we make to be a neighbor. It's so simple. We make it far more complex than it needs to be. And I don't know, that's just encouraging to me. Um, or I, I found that very um, both yeah practical and profound of um, mm-hmm. just that that concept of like what it what does it mean to be a neighbor and um, that just asking that question in our respective communities is a is a way towards that that's like she you know as she says like the answer to anti blackness the answer to racism so I don't know you know what that yeah. might look like for for different people but I mean here in here in my community it's a story that's being played out you know not just here but all over the country of um low-income families many uh like families of color are being pushed out because the um just as housing costs skyrocket Mm -hmm. and get higher and higher you know that's ultimately what it's doing how do we build stronger communities yeah yeah and like coming alongside those who maybe do need a solidarity they do need an ally to come alongside them and um yeah so good now that we're talking about this I'm also reflecting on even just my own journey of like yeah what it looked like to participate in protests in the summer of 2020 Mm -hmm. and then doing this like you know art prayer empathy table with other church members in DC and trying Mm -hmm. to kind of be a presence in the community and show that you know Christians support the fight for racial justice or Christians, right. you know, um, are present and, and see and hear and are with like the people who are crying out for justice. Um, and definitely like a lot of social media activism. And then I think for me, it, I started to reach that sort of point of like, okay, like what's next, you know, like what is yeah. the next right thing? Um, and that's when my husband, Justin and I came across uh, this nonprofit called Justice and Equality in DC mm. that's um, black led and like black leadership team. It's it's based in a, a black church called Revolution Church DC, and they are working directly on issues affecting predominantly the black community in the city, um, like issues of justice and nonviolence and wow. um, like violence among youth. Yeah, and. So they were basically calling for volunteers. And so both Justin and I felt compelled or called to go deeper in that way and to say like, okay, we're going to follow this organization and these people who are leading um, this movement and this group and see how we can kind of serve alongside them in that way. So I think, yeah, just to like give a practical example, like, because I think it can be confusing, but like looking for those opportunities and yeah. And just seeing what's, what is in your sphere of, in your community that um, maybe you could be contributing to. Yeah. So. Right. What's available. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That was a lot of that was new to me. Um, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that you were um, part of that. And I think, um, yeah, that's just such a great example of like, it was, I mean, it, you know, I'm not minimizing at all what you guys did, but a lot of it was showing up, you know, was seeing who, like you said, who was available and then just committing and, and showing up and, um, being willing to learn 
and to listen. And I mean, that's not easy work. So yeah, I think it can be hard sometimes to figure out, okay, well, what's my action step? And, And not everybody can commit themselves to an organization in that way, you know, but maybe you can, you know, financially support. And, and I think there is something to, yeah, like Janelle was talking about sort of that process of like transformation and, and just being willing to like go through that. And like you're saying, like put yourself in a position to listen and learn and then sort of like, yeah, let that flow out from you in your, your current context um, and relationships. Such a good conversation. So thankful for Janelle. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. 